What do you think of when you think of the Dutch? Of course, there's the tulip, the windmill. There's the Michael Caine character in the third Austin Powers movie who hates them. There's the wooden shoes, which aren't called Sebo, no matter how often I write that in the intro for it to be deleted later by Ben. There's also their stoicism and their height. I, I guess that's it. Oh, right. There's also a sense of permissiveness, isn't there? Here's a society with legal marijuana and pragmatic views on criminalizing other drugs. A place where sex work and sex workers are regulated and healthy. Speaking of sex work, I bet you're wondering, why in the hell is the Rickles of Friendly Fire doing the beloved intro to the show? What happened to the father time looking guy who hates all the movies? Well, I'll tell you, like all great journalists, he's on assignment. But back to the Dutch. To visit this part of the world is to know what it's like for a country to treat you like an adult. And from this societal and cultural cradle sprang Paul Verhoeven, a filmmaker with a mathematics and physics degree and a creator with a, how do you say, ah yes, reputation. For a while he dabbled in Dutch television and then parlayed that into a couple of Dutch features, one of which, Turkish Delight, was awarded Best Dutch Film of the Century status. So, his talent was recognized, but he had yet to create the oeuvre we know him for today. The Paul Verhoeven, if you will. So, Verhoeven comes to America, and it isn't long before he pivots into being a provocateur. Whether he's blowing up boardrooms in Robocop, uncrossing legs and basic instinct, or bringing Elizabeth Berkeley to... An aquatic orgasm that Kevin Costner could only dream of giving Gene Triplehorn in Waterworld. It's a body of work that is enough to get a film-going audience so excited and so scared all at once. But like any artist who achieves great commercial success early, Paul Verhoeven also wanted to make something important. So he returned to his native homeland and got to work on a film that told his country's side of the World War II story. Rachel played by John's personal internet friend, Carice Van Houten, is a young Jewish woman in the Netherlands who becomes a spy for the Dutch resistance after watching Nazis rob and kill a bunch of her friends and family. So, she's got to go undercover to infiltrate the Nazi ranks, and the only way to do that is to dye her pubic hair blonde. Because... Verhoeven. Anyway, the newly disguised Rachel is a real tactical asset. She's... An intoxicating combination of cunning and lead singer charisma. Sort of the way John imagines himself when he's daydreaming about the music career he used to have. Rachel uses these powers to seduce and manipulate Hauptsturmfuhrer Ludwig Muntz so she can get close to the deputy who ordered her family's murder, Obersturmfuhrer Gunther Franken. But the conflict isn't symmetrical. And the decisions made by characters with any agency aren't grounded in any kind of moral relativism. Nothing is black and white, especially Rachel's pubes. And Rachel is both aided and harmed by forces purporting to be on her side, including, most disturbingly, those that seek to undermine the mission of the Resistance for their own personal and financial gain. There's the communists, the religious pacifists, the Resistance doctor that winds up being a total creep, 
There's the lawyer who tried to help her family escape to Belgium. There's also the Nazi she's just a tiny bit attracted to when she's undercover as his non-Jewish secretary slash lover. Good thing the bad guys have been keeping records. You knew there'd be a black book in here somewhere, didn't you? By the end, the story descends into a cruel wreath of Mobius strips that isolates our beloved Rachel and places her in the greatest harm from both the Nazis who are chasing her and the Dutch resistance who believes her to be a turncoat. Also, we see Rachel's love interest executed before she gets a literal barrel of shit dumped on her in prison, which is why John has a new Google search tab open for Scheisen Prison. In the end, Rachel is sprung from prison by Ackermans, a guy she trusted the whole time, who then reveals himself to be maybe the worst character in a film full of actual Nazis. So it is with great satisfaction that we listen to him suffocate, leaving Rachel to contemplate her new life ahead, which will be fully funded by the money she's stolen from Ackermans, who stole it from Franken, who stole it from as many Jewish victims, like Rachel's murdered friends and family. Again with a moral relativism. In the final scenes, we see a glimpse of Rachel's new life within the walls of a kibbutz she funded with all that stolen money, which is now under attack at the beginning of what would become the Suez Crisis. And we understand once and for all at this point that Rachel's story will never have a happy ending. How far would you go? On today's Friendly Fires, we discuss the 2006 Paul Verhoeven-directed Black Book. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast where the carpet always matches the drapes. I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. When there is carpet or drapes. Yeah. Sure, sure, yeah. We're shaving all all the places, but at unpredictable times. A couple of things you know you're going to get with the Paul Verhoeven film. Uh, you're you're going to see frontal nudity and, and possibly male frontal nudity, mm-hmm. and you were going to see a lot of graphic bullet wounds. That is a, that's a selling point. That's a, that's a point of difference that yeah. marks the Paul Verhoeven stamp of approval. In 06, he had an entire career built on top of those things. Thick with RoboCops. Although, you know, he didn't have anything to do with the punch-up to RoboCop, which is one of the greatest things that has ever been created. Oh, you ever yeah, seen you... that, John? No. What is the punch-up to RoboCop? There's a scene in RoboCop where he shoots through a lady's skirt at a uh, at a at a man who is attacking her, and it hits the man in the in the groin. Yeah. There's a uh, video on the internet that is just RoboCop taking basically batting practice on dudes' dicks with his with his gun. Uh-huh. It's it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Well, I'll be sure to watch that right after we're done recording this show. Yeah, if you if you show it to if you watch it while Adam is present, you'll be able to witness Adam losing the ability to breathe. <laughs> He's laughing so hard. It works 100% of the time. It's great. Uh-huh. Uh, no one shot in the dick in this film though. Not that we see. Yeah. There might be some like there might be some backstory uh, to some of the characters. Like whatever the shooting equivalent of more than heavy petting is, these bullets went under the clothes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
there is a lot of heavy petting in this movie. It is. Sure it is. It is. It, it, it's not all the way to like Emmanuel in Paris level of softcore, but it goes well beyond gratuity. The amount of just like breastuses. There's mm-hmm. such a difference between like seeing nudity and seeing like groping, which is what you get in this film that you don't get in a lot of like R-rated American films, I don't think. Yeah, there's a there's a comfort with groping in this movie <laughs> that I think reflects a comfort with groping in the time. Yeah. But I don't think there was as much just like, um, I think that if you ripped someone's bodice in 1944, that person would rush to cover up mm-hmm. rather than stand there sort of, not even defiantly, but just like, I'm now a topless person. <laughs> For the Get remainder of, of this. this scene. That's right. Which is to say that like public pubic hair bleaching would be uh, not a thing that was done. I don't know. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to gauge during these wartime scenes where everyone is suffering from privation and they're all thrown together into safe houses and none of the normal standards of propriety apply anymore. I mean, if, if you know, if they're put, pulling Jews out of your neighborhood and shooting them up against a wall, it's hard to give a shit whether or not somebody sees your pubes. But at the same time, there's a kind of casual, super liberated sexuality that I'm, I just cannot locate in 1944. I feel like a lot of the discussion of this film is going to be around how realistic the depiction of all of this is. You know, like we've already started talking about, like, is that something a person would do in 1944? And one of the reviews I read of Black Book said this is as much like 1944 as the Las Vegas Eiffel Tower is to the one in France. (laughs) (laughs) And they're both great, right? Yeah, I mean, translating it through also the fact that this is a very Dutch movie starring very Dutch actors and made for a domestic dutch audience financed by those same dutch right and paul verhoven coming home and probably really wanting to to express to the dutch that although he's a hollywood big shot he is as dutch as they come he's gonna pass the duchy down the left hand (laughs) side i've filmed breasts from around the world it's time to go home time to get some of those local dutch breasts (laughs) But, you know, they think of themselves as a very open society, as a very liberal society, Mm -hmm. as one that is not uh, as repressed as a lot of other societies, although they are extremely repressed just in different ways. But they're permissive of drugs and sex and so forth. Uh, And so there's a lot of that in this, but it's hard to know how much that was also true of Dutch society in the 40s. I've never known. I've spent a lot of time there in the Netherlands. And the war plays a huge role in their, just the geography of the country, in their self, their self image. But it's very hard to know what they were like, what that, what that country's self image was in 1939. Hard for us to know, right? Yeah, it's almost like a singularity, right? Like there's like the point in time where you can't look past it. Okay, everybody, we're gonna make a short stop here and what is called a kibbutz. It's interesting that like hometown boy comes home to make film is the beginning of a story that doesn't quite end with 
I've made a film about the heroism of the Dutch. Specifically, because there's such a moral relativism happening here throughout the film, he doesn't make his own people look great. No. Not at all. I think that's part of the problem, right? It's very hard to make the Dutch look great in World War II. <laughs> I thought you were going to end that sentence in a different spot. It's very hard to make the Dutch look great. No, I I mean, I love... You're that, not a tailor. I love that com- that country's culture. Mm-hmm. But, and, and it's touched on in this movie quite a bit, right? That they are Germans in a lot of ways. And the reason the Nazis were so successful in the Netherlands, the reason that they killed as many as a, as a, a large proportion of the Jews as they did, is that the Dutch were already keeping very accurate records of everyone's religion and culture. And I mean, they, all the Germans had to do was walk in and change the name tag on the door and all that hmm. hyper Germanic ordering of things was already in place. Hmm. So when the man went out to deliver the new ID cards, they just handed him ones that had big black J's on them for the Jews. It wasn't like other countries where they had to impose a system and so the Dutch have, they have this history where it's like they didn't just collaborate. The infrastructure was was pretty welcoming. Although they weren't, the Dutch weren't racists uh-huh. in the same way. But it was very easy for the Germans to just be like, okay, great, well, yeah. I mean, like the the Dutch have like an interesting, like counterpoint in history to this, which is like their colony in the the New World, New Amsterdam, famously was the first place to be in entirely permissive of jewish immigrants right and it was just because it was like it's business who cares like right if they're gonna come and be industrious like the more the merrier well and i think there's a there is a very good historic case to make that the success of the the dutch as global traders was you know uh, this is a thing that i guess a lot of people don't know but the the netherlands and the Low Countries, Belgium too, were part of the Spanish Empire for uh, quite a period of their history. And so during that period, it also kind of coincided with a period where the Jews were being chased out of Spain. And a lot of Jews ended up in the Netherlands and were kind of embraced there in ways that they weren't, you know, they were they're being pushed out of Spain found a new home in the Netherlands and their trading experience, their, their uh, connections in North Africa, their mercantile skills helped make the Dutch the nation they are. So yeah, not just permissive, but you know, pretty welcoming. But a larger percentage of Jews died from the Netherlands than any other country in Europe. Wow. Like 75% of the of the Jews who had been living in the Netherlands for hundreds of years, right? Since the 1500s. They had a mm. they had an incredibly v- vibrant culture there. Well, it would be pretty upsetting to watch a movie that made it look like the Netherlands went out of its way not to allow that to happen. I mean, at, at least uh, right. at the very least, this is somewhat honest. And there are conversations in this movie that sound very familiar and very contemporary, like the conversation about like is a Dutch life worth less to you than a Jewish life and like dividing them in that way, like they're both Dutch lives is the rejoinder to that, but also like that's not how anybody is thinking of it in that time and place. Right, and that guy's the nominal hero of the resistance. Right. 
This movie uh, covers a span of time that is really interesting and not one that we have gotten much of so far because it there's a lot of stakes still when the war ends at about the two-thirds of the way through Mark and uh, and our, our main characters are not safe. And uh, that's something that I've heard you bring up a bunch, John, like that it wasn't just a party uh, the second the war ended. Although it seems like for most of the people for many weeks yeah. in this movie, it's a party. Like, like the entire last third of this movie, every time you go around a corner, there's people like drinking and reveling. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think in the Netherlands, like it was not a party for people in Poland or the Czech Republic or Hungary. But, you know, the Netherlands were part of the British mandate. And so... And um, it's not like the British had a ton of food either, but um, very few people were getting put against the wall. I mean, they did all that stuff about shaving women's heads and hanging signs around their necks uh, for being collaborators. But yeah, they're throwing the hair into the crowd. Do you want to catch that hair or uh, or what? Boy, I don't know. Feeding frenzy. It's like uh, you never want to catch the garter at a wedding, right? Or the bouquet. Right. <laughs> Well, I think if you spent the whole war pretending that everything was fine, yeah. you're really going to take it out on the people that pretended to be more friendly, slightly more friendly to the Germans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's, you're trying to absolve yourself of the of culpability. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, like the if generally speaking, the the body politic was like as okay with the Nazis being in charge as whoever was before. It doesn't necessarily follow that everybody would be super psyched when they get liberated, but... I think Ronnie embodies that feeling maybe more than anyone, at least for the viewer. She's the one that we get to know the best who has really flipped and played both sides. And she actually achieves some kind of absolution at the end. Like, she finds a boyfriend, right. and hers is not the head that's being shaved. Right. She, she managed just by bobbing and weaving... That's just Ronnie being Ronnie. It's Ronnie being Ronnie. And she was as collaborationist as it comes. Yeah. Yeah, so there was no justice for everyone. She stayed on her she stayed light on her toes. It's really hard to put ourselves again in 1939 or 1941 when it seemed like the Germans were on their way to inevitable victory and why fight it? And it was over the course of the war from 41 to 44, where people in these occupied nations started to realize not just that the Germans were losing, but that having the Germans as administrators was a shitty deal mm -hmm. because normal Dutch guys were being sent to the front or volunteer. You know, they were being forcibly volunteered to work in factories. It wasn't just like, well, the Germans are here now and I guess it's fait accompli. New boss, same as the old boss. Right. But if you've just spent the last four <laughs> years essentially collaborating new fascist who dis <laughs> <laughs> eggplant emoji but then if you look really closely there's a little hand at the end yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty blown away by the production value on this film like you read the box and you're thinking like dutch production paul verhoven like good 
like good reputation for for bringing some some heat with regard to a film but like this is a hollywood film that exists outside of hollywood and i thought it looked great what did you guys think like and it started with a bang too right like that low flying bomber dropping its ordinance to to gain altitude and seemingly dropping its ordinance onto them and onto the barn right in kind of a dickish way yeah hard to miss that you're flying right over a barn as yeah. you're pulling those the levers. I expected to like rack up into the interior of that bomber and hear like <laughs> hoots and hollers, right? Like <laughs> them, that barn blew big. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I mean, I know we're just trying to cut weight, but uh, target of opportunity, that was pretty fun. <laughs> High fives all around. <laughs> yeah, apparently that was an actual uh, ancient barn that had that they just blew up as part of the like, let's go find a barn that nobody's using. Pretty dry kindling. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. What did you think of the look and feel of the movie, Ben? I mean, it's very slick. It's uh, it's, it's very much a a 2006 film where it's perfectly color balanced and very high spec, very, uh, I'm not sure if this was shot on digital, but it definitely was finished on digital. And uh, I, I know that you you love the like the crackle and hiss of the analog era of filmmaking, John. You're you're a bit of a bit of a film hipster in that way. But, I like uh, crackle I, and hiss, no doubt. It's my favorite U2 album. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very flawless technically, and I think that there's a reasonable argument to be made that this amount of of technical flawlessness can make a film seem a little flat and saccharine but to me it was it was just very beautiful to behold and i was able to focus on the story and characters which is especially important to me in a film where i'm reading subtitles most of the time Mm -hmm. so uh so i did not uh did not hate the way this looked you're right that i did find it too i found it tv movie clean you're not fully clean until you're TV movie clean. <laughs> it felt a, it felt like something that was filmed in high definition or something that wasn't that I was watching on a high definition TV. It was just like I don't know, I don't know. I can't describe it in technical terms like you guys can, but but I I felt a, I felt it was a little bit uh, slick. What'd you think of the score? I thought the score was the only part of the production that I really had a hard time with, and I think. Uh, for a reason related to Ben's reason. When I am not hearing dialogue and instead am reading subtitles, what I'm really hearing is that score more than anything, more than someone's voice. You know, I'm not even listening to that really. And so the the, the score felt like it was either actually mixed loud to me or I was just hearing it louder than it was meant to be because I wasn't hearing people talk to each other in the same way that I would in an English-speaking film. Yeah, I wonder if that mix is different for different markets. Even, I mean, it doesn't. That seems like it'd be economically hard to justify. But you know, if they're looping the dialogue or whatever, I think in a war film, a score is maybe more important in this genre than than any other. Like for for setting the emotional tone of a thing or of a scene, and when you don't get that really right, I think that can hurt a film. It's funny because I'm normally super sensitive to score, but I didn't, I think maybe a couple of times I thought treacle, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I was focusing hard on 
listening to the Dutch speak. Mm-hmm. And partly it's because I'm, I've always been fascinated by how English is a Germanic language. You don't hear, like when you listen to romance languages, you pick up all the vocabulary where you're like, oh, I know what to, I know what they mean when they say Paris, that's Paris. <laughs> but in the German or in the Germanic languages, you also see all these similarities to English that are both vocabulary and also kind of grammatical. So I'm always striving to hear it, not that I'm picking it up mostly, but just like intrigued by it. So somehow the score just bounced off of me, except for those treacle moments. Was it Ronnie who mentioned the similarities between languages of Dutch and German? Oh, she said it's basically a dialect or something? Well, she mentioned that that the Germans felt like Dutch was like dirty German or like slurry German or something. I thought that was interesting, and it really made listening to the film... An interesting exercise, too, because so many of these characters slip into and out of Dutch and German and English. Yeah. Slurry German is where you mix German with like a cornstarch or Uh something like that. Uh (laughs) A little bit bit of concrete (laughs) aggregate. Yeah. (laughs) Ons is ons. I've traveled a lot there in the Netherlands, and and in the area that is closest to Germany, you start to detect in the Dutch a kind of harsher tone a harsher coloration of their accent as you get closer to Germany. And when you cross the border into Germany, the German there sounds really relaxed and chill and, you know, like real vibey compared to what German is when you Mm -hmm. get into Germany. And it's so, so you can perceive just in the sort of dialect as you move across that border, which is a, which has always been a pretty porous border. Um, how much more relaxed Dutch is just in like the temperature of it is very warm. Yeah. I mean, high German is what they teach you in high school. That's like the hard ich. Ich. But like when you go to Germany, it's ich. A lot or, of it. And or, then, or a lot of it. Yeah. And when you get down closer to Switzerland, it's just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's super soft. <laughs> I mean, I hate to be chauvinistic about the different. German dialects? I have no idea what I'm talking about. You're the one man on the show who can. <laughs> There's this part in the beginning where she and her family all pile onto a riverboat heading for Belgium. They're going to try and ride out the war in Brussels. I guess I was a little... I guess I was confused. I thought Belgium was was occupied. It was. was. It, so, so is it just less worse in Belgium than it was in the Netherlands? I had no idea what that was about. Why would you go to Brussels? Hmm. I, I don't I don't know. Maybe it's just that the the Belgians were I don't know the statistics of how what percentage of the Jews of Belgium got sent to camps. Maybe it was a safer place. Yeah. I d- I didn't understand that. If you were going to try and escape or is it just like nobody knew who you were, so yeah, your identity yeah. was easier to fabricate? To forge, yeah. That might have been it. Yeah, this uh, this scene is really upsetting. It's it's the signature exploding blood wounds of Paul Verhoeven followed by <laughs> the corpses being looted. The the Nazis get the drop on this boat and they uh and they take all of the money that these Jewish escapees are trying to take to, you know, fund their lives for the remainder of the war essentially right right all their gold all, all their wealth consolidated into gold and diamonds and it i feel like it is extra upsetting the way they have i mean the the movie depicts the 
the Nazis as having just zero regard for the dignity of these corpses. And I, f- I feel like, you know, some movies kind of take for granted that we hate the Nazis. And this one really, really makes you hate them hard in this moment. It does. But have you ever seen a movie where there was so much, I mean, where the head of the Gestapo became not only like a hero, but also a love interest, like an, like an unapologetic, he didn't do anything. He didn't save a bunch of Jews or anything. She just liked fucking him and (laughs) he was slightly less, he was his, the thing that made him heroic was that he was not on this self immolation course that the rest of the Germans appeared to be. The only thing that made him nice was he didn't want everybody to just suicide. Yeah. But he never renounced Nazism. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that the to the extent that he did, it's in that he is aware of the fact that she's Jewish and doesn't do anything about it. I right. mean, it doesn't like it doesn't go any further than that. You're going to be okay with a lot of things when your dick is out though. Well, like, I mean, her, the whole case she made to him, he's like you, you know, if you were a Jew and were going to mess with the Germans, what better way than this? And she just pulled her boobs out and was like, are these Jewish? Mm-hmm. Like her whole case was, well, we're, I mean, do you want to lose this great sex? And he was like, you're right. You make a very compelling case. I'll even allow that you're you're Jewish because you're like hot. That's pretty Verhoeven. <laughs> Did it make him less Nazi or more horny? I mean, from the moment he's on screen, you feel a kind of virility to him. He, he He's magnetic. He's sort of a fat Powers Booth, I thought. He's very Powers Booth. You're right. But all the other Nazis in the movie are so just Nazi. Yeah, this uh, the Franken guy is like off the assembly line tub of shit yeah. bad Nazi <laughs> the worst pig faced yeah like and then you know the other Nazis none of them are any good and then this guy kind of swarths in and you're like wow I'd like to see him in his underwear I don't want to besmirch the great acting career of Valdemar Cobus by calling him a tub of shit like no. I'm, I'm calling the character <laughs> that he's portraying no, Valdemar is yeah, you know one great. of the greats yeah <laughs> although I think he plays Nazi tubs of shit in a lot of his films <laughs> <laughs> He's been tub of shit cast. Yeah. 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 As has Christian Burkle, who uh is he a three peat na- Nazi on yeah. uh, friend- friendly fire now? I mean he probably keeps one uniform and then takes it from movie to movie, right? Right. So he was in Valkyrie mm-hmm. and And Downfall. And Downfall, right. <laughs> That's a hat trick with a name, right? I just can't think of what it might be. <laughs> <laughs> but also uh Clarice Van Houten. Yeah. And uh, the woman who played Frankie, both were also in uh, Valkyrie, right? Were they in Downfall also? Is this a kind of thing? Are you talking about Ronnie? Ronnie. I'm sorry, not Jackie. Ronnie. Yeah, Ronnie was in Valkyrie. Yeah. And Man. Clarice Van Houten won or was nominated for an Academy Award for her performance in Valkyrie. I want to know what was happening in the Academy where the where the Dutch put this movie forward black book as their candidate for best foreign language film and it wasn't even nominated like that just seems some that seems like something going on in the academy where they were like nope 
Uh, it seems too too much like what we do. Yeah, right. I mean, it's two and a half hour enough. movie, like not edgy enough. Yeah, like if this had been in English, I feel like it would be an Oscar bait film, right? Certainly enough to be nominated, right? Yeah, or maybe too many boobs for the Academy. Well, I mean, whew. they just don't make them with that many boobs anymore. Well, uh, in 2006, we've got uh, Pan's Labyrinth, Water, Days of Glory, After the Wedding, and the winner was The Lives of Others. These are the foreign films. Germany beats <laughs> beats everyone out. <laughs> Once again. <Yet> again. <laughs> Lives of Others is pretty great. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, no nom. No hmm. nomination for Black Book. The titular Black Book uh, belongs to... The white Harriet Tubman figure of the movie. He's got the book of names. Well, did you not feel that the movie was, I thought, pretty cleverly setting him up as the traitor throughout the film? I mean, when they confront him at the end and say, like, you're the one that's been giving us away the whole time. Right. I felt throughout the entire film that they were doing a bad job of creating that kind of, because it was like, okay, if this guy, if this guy ends up being the betrayer. Um, like the central whodunit of this story, I thought was pretty well executed. I the, agree. the culprit of the the whodunit never really showed. There's one scene when he when they go into the jail to free everybody, and it's a trap. Mm-hmm. He comes around the corner and looks into a cell and gives a look of satisfaction, yeah, rather than a look of horror. And we know after the fact that he would have been seeing the trap laying in wait. And so that's the only clue we have that he's the... I will agree with you to the point that uh, that revelation was well done. But because he was never seen as being nervous in a situation where he should have been, I thought that was what made him immediately suspect to me. You suspected him throughout the movie? Because... Because he was the coolest guy in the room in a, at a time where he shouldn't have been. He was he was taking great risks. Bullets were flying and he seemed bulletproof. Yeah, and he's in like he's in a beautiful home that, that he's not worried about losing for any reason. He's doing the most dangerous thing he could do. No one really suspects him ever. A little bit of sweat on his brow I think would have gone a long way for me. Now, uh, what Adam is not admitting here is I, I watched the movie with him and when when the big reveal happened... Adam was like, what? What? Oh, my God. I did not see that coming. I did not see that coming. You know, in a Paul Verhoeven film, it's just reveal after reveal, and maybe I was just uh, burned out by that point. I cannot believe anymore that I could have thought that this would be, could be an American movie. Uh, there are, like, five false endings to this movie. And I did start to feel like after the third false ending. Get in the boat and go to the Grey Havens, Frodo. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right, like how many different stories are we telling here? We spent, the, we spent an entire movie's worth of time telling a story about the resistance. And then all of a sudden we are telling a story about the aftermath. And then we're telling a story about the double aftermath. And then we're in a helicopter, and then we're in a hovercraft. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, who all is getting their comeuppance here? An awful lot of comeuppances. Unrelated, kind of. 
a, a lot of comeuppance, but also a, a lot of indignity has suffered to engender that comeuppance. I mean, we talked about the the corpse wrapping scene toward the beginning, but like what some of these characters have to stoop to to say safe is pretty intense. And then some of the things that are visited upon them are, I mean, like the speaking of tubs of shit, there's an actual tub of shit in this movie. Yeah, you get that that shit carry scene at the end. But that but that's one of the scenes where I'm like, where are we now? She got tarred by the bad Nazi. He did a pretty clever switcheroo and made the resistance think that she was the collaborator. Mm-hmm. But then we have to see her like have an entire bucket of shit dumped on her. And I was like, is this like she's naked again and now also covered with shit? Whose fetish is this? <laughs> this feels a little bit like the filmmaker has been saying to himself for 20 years, you know what would be great in a movie? Naked girl covered with poop. Can I work this in somewhere? It doesn't really work in showgirls. It's not really a I mean, Robocop it, it, scene either. It was more metaphorical in showgirls. It just felt like 10 minutes of the movie that we, that, that experience of her being, uh, being fingered as the, as the, you know, wrongly accused, we could have accomplished that more economically without the, without the like scatologic. I think that like the corpse robbing scene though, if we take as a given that this was primarily intended for a Dutch audience, like it is the Dutch that look bad in this scene, you know, it's the mob, it's the, it's the celebrating, you know, the people that have just thrown off the, the shackles of, Nazism who are doing something that seems as bad or worse in this moment like from that standpoint this is a pretty I mean I I I kind of agree with you that a a lot of filmmakers are putting their prurient little fantasies into into movies like this but um I I would be very curious to hear from I don't know if we have any Dutch listeners but uh I know, you know what this scene feels like to watch because you know like uh, that's another thing we talk about a lot on this show is like what what are you saying to yourself as a society when you make a movie about what happened during a war you were in i think the dutch are maybe more than anyone else in europe extremely woke and were early like their their their, their self-awareness about their performance in the war is complicated they're not trying to paint a picture where the only thing they talk about is how glorious their resistance movement was. You see that sometimes in France. And again, we talked about that in army of shadows where it's like the French resistance was small, isolated cells of people operating in a culture that was largely just like rolling over. And by the end of the war, those numbers had swelled so that you get, so that granddad could make a compelling case that he'd been in the resistance the whole time. Right. But the Dutch don't play that game in their conversations at home, right? They're like, we have some shit to answer for. And maybe the maybe that in huge bucket of feces and urine was part of their like it's just, it was symbolic. They had to they had to watch that to really feel fully like they'd to achieve the catharsis yeah, of it. Yeah, right. Mm. Where they're like, this is us. Hmm. We're dirty. Uh, Dr. Ackermans puts his jacket around her right after that. Oh, yeah. Is there a, I mean, 
you never wear that jacket again, right? Like there's no amount of laundry that can fix. But that's what makes a hero, right? Even though he was the evildoer. I could see you, Adam or Ben, like wanting to help her, but also not wanting to touch her. Like, (laughs) you know, stand up. Okay, let's let's move this way. Like, come on, I'm getting you out of here. But like, whoa, 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 don't don't come any closer. (laughs) Ben would get on that hose. (laughs) (laughs) But he still loves her, right? Like the insulin scene is after he realizes that she still loves uh, Muntz. Right. He gives her the chance Mm -hmm. to fall for him. And when she cries for months, something turns in him. Yeah. Right. So he is motivated again by love. Heavy. I mean, I loved months, honestly. (laughs) Whoa. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. <gasps> yeah. We occasionally do this in the war films that we watch. Like, who is the most evil person in this film? It's Ackerman's, right? In the end? Yeah. yeah. He betrays everybody. Yeah. For money. For money. He's the rat fuck. He's also very, very swashbuckling. It's interesting how he poses the greatest threat to everyone, but he's never the one I'm most scared of in the film. Like, it's always either Franken or Moons. Like Ackerman's is is so smooth, it's unbelievable until the very end when like his true evil, like that entire scene where he's he's in the coffin and she's screwing the airway closed. He and he and he makes that turn from like begging for his life to cursing her out to begging to cursing yeah. to finally like dying. It's like that come was, on, dude, pick one. <laughs> that was a great scene, I thought. Heavy scene. Heavy scene. And then they they wait him out by the water. And they have that moment where they're like, you know, we're good people. We should probably let him out. Gerben, Gerben, who's lost as much, if not more than anyone, is like, even he, like, I think he's just so cold and dead at that point. Like, he he can't even feel anything about that moment. Like, that just seems like like an administrative task to him. But that feels like the most Dutch moment Hmm. because they are reflecting on the fact that their 
culture does not suffocate people in their escape coffins. That's just not what we do. And yet, we do do that sometimes. Yeah, we did. We're yeah. just going to take a moment with it and recognize that we're doing this. Yeah. And also recognizing that this is not what we do. And I was just like, okay, Alistair Bleef. It's a really like show-stopping shot con- composition too yeah. in that moment because like her hair is backlit, almost like an angelic aura is around her. And then on the other half of the frame is the car that's like rocking back and forth as this guy gives off his death rattle. She is so beautiful in almost every scene in this film, even when she is at her worst, even when she's covered with a bucket of shit. I mean, I drew the line there at appreciating how beautiful she was. But like she got she got thrown into a prison and she's still like wearing the beautiful red dress and it's totally untorn. The only moment in the film where she's dirty at all, I feel like, is bucket of shit scene. Yeah, I mean she's a she's astonishingly beautiful, but also like I she never drew me out of the movie. Right? She was I I really appreciated her acting throughout. There were other actors who made this feel TV movie sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it was never her. I mean, she's ab- so much the focus of this movie. The camera's never not on her. So much is made about like what she's willing to sacrifice as a character and the lengths she's willing to go to accomplish her mission. But I wonder, like, for all that she does as a character, if if her beauty is a handicap to that as a viewer. Like, I never really felt like she was truly in danger well, because she's not the one sleeping with Franken, her her mission, should she choose to accept it, is to fall in love with a handsome and powerful officer. Mm-hmm. So the movie doesn't actually make her do anything abhorrent. At first, the idea of sleeping with this Nazi feels abhorrent, mm-hmm. and it feels like a tremendous sacrifice. But boy, they fall in love with each other fast. Right. Immediately. And that makes it less of a sacrifice. Right. Although she's still working for the for the revolution, working for the cause rather, you don't get a feeling like she's has to grit her teeth and do her nasty business. Yeah. Did you guys get a sense of what the jobs of the Nazi characters were? Are they like administering the town? It sure seemed like they were moving prisoners around a lot, especially at the end, right? It seemed like a real pastiche. Like we've got three Nazis. We've got head Nazi in charge. <laughs> Thank, oh, you, Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. We've got... Uh, I, I, that I mean, was just, just for you. That's a pregnant pause where I <laughs> contemplate the mail that we will justifiably receive. <laughs> there is a bad, bad Nazi who seems to kind of be everywhere, right? He's got a desk in an office and he's doing... He's pushing papers around, but somehow he's also out on machine gun duty in his leather trench coat. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got the keys to a pretty sweet riverboat. Yeah, right. Yeah. He's got. He seems to be a little bit uh, like a like an amalgam of about five different people. And then Muntz, I never see him do it. He never lifts a finger. I never see him do a single thing other than go to parties. He collects those stamps. He collects stamps, but I mean, he's nominally the head of the Gestapo. He should be. He should at least have some ideology on display. For my ears to this is the very end of the war, the last days of the war. They talk about Berlin being in Russian hands. And and that's another story of the war. Like when 
Normandy happened, basically the Netherlands were a kind of rump territory, still in German hands. A part of Europe you want to cook low and slow. Low and slow. <laughs> Whereas Patton and the, you know, the, the, the main thrust of the invasion just was headed straight to Germany. They were like, we don't need to go up there. You know, Montgomery and there were, there were some operations that kind of failed in terms of trying to, trying to liberate the Netherlands famously, you know, famously failed. But the major thrust was like, let's just go to Berlin. Uh, the, the, whoever the Nazis are in Amsterdam, we'll, you know, we'll deal with them later. That's more of an administrator. That's mopping up. And so a lot of the action of this film is taking place where the fate of the war is determined. And they're just kind of wandering around. I mean, they're not even burning papers. They're drinking champagne. Right. Birthday parties for Hitler. Yeah. Hitler's probably already dead in his bunker at that point. Didn't he die after his birthday? Hmm. I forget how downfall goes. I don't know the Hitler story. He did, right? They had a birthday party for him in the bunker. Did they yeah. clean out the entire party city of those little swastika flags <laughs> for the for the table arrangements? Got a lot of little swastika flags I mean, for that and party. And they never restocked them, and, a, and, and that's just weird, <laughs> you know? You know, in the fall of 1945, if you were looking for some memorabilia, I bet you could buy some swastika flags pennies on the dollar what do you think happened to that hitler head that was at that party that giant what looked like cast iron <laughs> you know hitler I, head i i hate to i hate to like I think they blew it up i hate to be so me right now but i was in a i was in an antique store in san juan puerto rico one time <laughs> and there was a giant bust of hitler for sale <laughs> How giant? Not, I mean, bigger than life, but mm -hmm. not like, uh, you know, not 10 feet tall. Uh-huh. Definitely like desktop sized giant bust of, <laughs> giant like bronze bust of Hitler. And I stood there, you know, I stood there. You were thinking about how you could fit into your luggage, right? Well, you I, were looking to see if it had an orange or a blue dot on it, which would... Which would connote a, a significant <laughs> discount on the sticker price. Is this half off? Could I get this back onto the cruise ship? But like, hey, listen, uh, this guy seems to have lost the war. Anything you can do on the price? Yeah, you know, this, this is going to be a tough sell, I think. But like when you're in, in uh, Buenos Aires or in San Santiago, right, there are still, Buenos Aires especially, there's an awful lot of, uh, the rules are different there. You can have a bust of Hitler on your bookshelf down there, and it's still like a curiosity rather than something here. If you walked into somebody's house and you're like, huh, nice bust of Hitler. <laughs> Smash cut to walking away from the house in slow motion as <laughs> yeah, it immolates behind you. <laughs> exactly. That's not a thing that you're going to be like, wow, you're a quirky collector of things. <laughs> You're going to say like, oh. I should tell you, Ben, uh, John's been doing quite a bit of packing, and there is a box, <laughs> and written on that box is, bunch of Hitler heads. <laughs> yeah, but they're shrunken apple heads. Right, right. I went through a phase where I was doing sh shrunken apple Hitlers all the time. <laughs> that is not a shot you want to take at a certain bar either. I was trying, you know, I was trying to raise money for my daughter's school. Yeah, that's noble. Yeah, Hitler Heads for Education, the, uh, uh -huh. the <laughs> breakfast cereal collection program. But I think there are there are busts of Hitler, just as there are busts of Stalin, still out there in circulation. I don't think you could get away with it in New York City, but... I mean, is the answer to the question, how did they get there, that those that escaped 
Nazi Germany before the fall went to South America and areas nearby and brought all that shit with them? Like, whatever Hitler heads you could put in a suitcase, did you bring those along or were those those homegrown Hitler heads? I bet you soldiers were like, let, let me grab that Hitler head and put that in my suitcase because that's going to be hilarious back in Ames, Iowa. Wow. But, I mean, you know, in Fremont here in our own Seattle, we have a 30-foot-tall Lenin striding uh, through a field of bronze flags. I am the walrus. <laughs> and and we thought that was hilarious because who wouldn't want one? Uh, it's still kind of hilarious because mm-hmm. we don't we don't tag the deaths of 80 million people to Lenin exactly. Not a one-to-one. You wouldn't have a big statue of Stalin there. I think that would get it. You'd get more, a lot more protests. You yeah. certainly wouldn't put a 30-foot-tall Hitler in Fremont. <laughs> And be like, lol. Yeah, that would. <laughs> that's more of a Burian thing. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, do you want to hear something that uh, distracted people on the internet complained about in this movie? Oh, in the movie and not in our podcast? Because I don't want to hear what they don't like are about gonna, our podcast. Are you going to dump a bucket of shit on this show with, <laughs> with your moment of pedantry? Do it. This, this is one of those ones that really undoes the whole movie. You can hear the sound of common swifts when they try to kidnap Van Gyne. These birds migrate in August and are not present in the Netherlands during winter. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that somebody noticed that, you know, you know, when when Northern Exposure was really popular on television, Uh uh, there was a radio show in Alaska. There was a call in radio show. Uh, devoted entirely to people calling in and saying what was wrong about Northern Exposure because it was <laughs> Northern Exposure was filmed in Washington and it was exactly that kind of pedantry like yeah. those that kind of tree doesn't would never be 30 feet tall because we have them in Alaska but they'd only be 10 feet tall <laughs> and it was a very popular radio show I feel like I could enjoy that yeah I kind of would too Van Gyne goes out like the demonstration of Ed 209 in RoboCop. Like he gets a comeuppance uh, front and back, and it's Theo that doles it out. Theo, the the gentlest of the crew, who never wants to kill, is the one to take him out. What did you think of that scene? Van Gyne was the traitor. He was the guy who got uh, Rachel's parents killed. His was the voice on the other end of the phone. Among others, right. Yeah. I wasn't listening for the, the Swifts during that scene, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I was no, distracted yeah. by, by the terrific violence of it. I kept wondering why Theo was not bumped out of this, of, of this team a long time ago. The first time he had like a Christian epiphany when yeah. his real job was just to fire his fucking gun. Theo's going to get people killed. I would have said, Theo, why don't you go to the cutting potatoes job yeah. and not be part of our commando team. And he's a huge downer whenever they, they score a victory. Like, bad bad people are dying and they're killing them. And no one can even can even relish a score because downer Theo is talking about how sad he is for taking a life. Plus he's got that butt cut. I mean, just all the way around Theo Worst sucks. haircut in the film. <laughs> a butt cut? That's great. I've never heard that described 
that one. I, uh, I used to have that haircut, and when I found out that it was called a butt cut, I was uh, <laughs> I was retroactively deeply embarrassed. Und behalten alle Wertgegenstände für sich. Van Gein was the character that you wanted. You knew that he was being set up as a bad guy. And at, at the beginning of the movie, when he puts them on the boat and then doesn't get on the boat with them, you're like, bad guy, bad guy, bad yeah. guy. <laughs> bad guy alert. But then there's a long period in the movie where it's not 100% clear whether he's a bad guy or not. Was it 100% clear to you if the captain of the ferry boat lived? Or no. are they just going through ferry boat captains left and right? Not clear. Yeah. Although, I mean, not clear. We see he seems to know to duck, right? It's not quite like the toll booth operator in The Godfather. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, right. And then we see that boat up on shore, but it's not clear whether the Germans towed it there. Right. Yeah, because not only do they appear to be going through ferry boat captains, but like you can't reuse that ferry boat again. Like the next, the next group of people that comes on for that that ferry are gonna feel the ground and all of its myriad bullet holes like you're not even going to get on that boat right um it's a question of resources is what i'm saying I see what you mean yeah right it seems like if you're going to betray those people you don't need to get them on the boat i wonder if it's all about that black book after all you got the guy writing down people's names and approximate values like about how much they'd be carrying on their person maybe he's assembling uh, a very wealthy group that they'll go and take out on a on a mission like this, but it does, it doesn't happen all the time. There has to be the promise that this thing is going to work. So I imagine many of these fairies actually made it, so as to entice those that are rich enough to go into a, a trap like this. Right. Well, the, the what we never under what we never figure out is whether small is actually in cahoots with Ackermans. They're just working independently bad? Yeah, or what? You know, because she accuses him and he goes, well, yes, but we've done some independent research and he sounds, he's very much a lawyer in that moment. Mm -hmm. He's using this like, I could be guilty, but on the other hand, like he never, it's unclear whether he he confesses, but he definitely is like an alternate theory, which I'm about to say in front of the Canadians, oh shit, I'm dead now. And so we don't we don't know if the entire movie he's also betraying the Jews. Well what but wasn't he killed so that he wouldn't talk? Killed so he wouldn't talk, but that doesn't mean he wasn't killed because he had figured it out. Yeah. I mean I don't I don't know. I think he was guilty also. Uh, and that's another thing that's amazing about this movie is that it is so there is so much moral ambiguity yeah there's nobody that is just operating um throughout the whole movie as like hero person do you generally like tv and movies that operate that way i know a lot of people who for instance like can't watch breaking bad because it's anti-heroes all the way down and this feels like a movie that is a little bit like that i mean our main our main character is wronged directly I can't watch Breaking Bad because it sucks. Oh. Whoa. Hot take coming Doesn't through. Doesn't really have anything to do with the anti-hero-ness of it. Guys, you're not, not going to want to touch that hot take. You're going to want to <laughs> let it cool. 
I mean, I feel like we are in a we are in a world right now where there is an awful an awful lot of uh, virtue signaling is taking the form of very black and white interpretations of politics. I wouldn't know anything about that. No, you wouldn't. I know you're a darling. But if you if you suggest that you even study the opponent, the opposing view, I'm not saying take it into consideration. I'm just saying, like, even learn about the opposing view. There is a school of thought now that suggests that that alone is I mean, it's this false equivalence problem, Mm -hmm. right? If you if you take any stance other than that, there is a right and then there are seemingly infinite number of wrongs. And you either pursue the right or you are wrong. You're complicit in wrong. And that's boring. It's a boring philosophy. It's not a useful one. It's a revolutionary philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we are pursuing the revolution and that is the path of justice. And there's one way. And so somebody like me that's like, well, you know, I was reading a book about what the other side thinks and it's like collaborationist, apologist, (laughs) colonialist. And it's like, whoa, everybody slow down. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. You can be a progressive and still have read some books that that aren't just by Howard Zinn. And so I do like stories like this where you're like, wow, everybody kind of complicit here. And yet, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, you know, who, who do you root for? Does that help us look at ourselves and look at our friends and say, right, there's no one perfect here. Does that help us? Is this is this media we're consuming in order to come out the other side with a more nuanced vision of the world, or is are or, or, are what we're looking for in our media is an idealized version of the world so that we can pick our side? I mean, it's the old question: If you were living in in the Netherlands during this period, what would you have done? There are very few people that it turns out behaved purely throughout the war. Yeah. Well, and purity is totally subjective too, right? Like the right. people in the resistance are like, it's it's enemy of my enemy mm-hmm. as coalition because it's socialists and super religious guys. It's like they they all have different reasons for being there. So right, a coalition that's expedient, and as soon as the major threat of the Germans is gone, they're back at each other's throats. Which is true of the of the Allies too. Right, right, exactly. I mean, we we were at war with the, the Soviets halfway through the war that we were in cahoots with the Soviets. I mean, into, you know, emotionally and intellectually. But, but it's so easy to sit now in, the, in, this, in this state that we're in now and imagine that you are going to behave ideologically according to your best impulse, your best desire, but then you get into a situation where it's like, oh, well, the police now are taking my neighbors away, and I know if I stand up, I too will go away. Aren't I better used by keeping silent now so that I can do something later? Yeah, so I can be backhanded and yeah, and, and secret you know, with my resistance. And maybe like blow up a railroad every once in a while. And it's like, well, in order to do that, you had to watch... 120 of your neighbors go to the death camps. So do you feel 100% good about what you did? But on the other hand, would you have done a would you have made more of a difference going to the death camps with them? All of that is like really interesting and complicated and fucked up to think about. Yeah. Who wants to watch a movie where someone is just like da 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 through the whole thing? Do you think this movie could have been made 
in the same era as Flying Leathernecks was made to depict American World War II heroism. Like, could could you make a film with this story depicting the Dutch as they are to the Dutch, like for a Dutch audience? There would have been a hero. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we see movies from Flying Leathernecks era where there are bad Americans, mm-hmm. but they're the aberration. The bad American is there as a proxy to show us that Americans did loot and did rape and were monsters. But it's always a guy or a couple of guys, but there is always a hero. And there's not really a hero in this Yeah, movie. I sure am getting the feeling from watching all these war films that like, and I wonder when that happened, when, when, it, when war films changed from hero films into more complex, more morally relativistic, uh, complicated stories like this. There's not a hero in Apocalypse Now, really. Yeah. There's you, not a hero in Platoon. Do you think that Rachel slash Ellis wasn't a hero in this movie? I mean, Ellis is, Ellis has lost everything. Yeah. It's like, in, I mean, it's like Luke Skywalker at the beginning, you know? Yeah. But up, you, yeah, you exactly. can't go like, back. <laughs> it's up until the point that she is up until the point that her entire family is massacred by machine gun right in front of her. She's not part of any resistance. She's hiding out and on her and trying to escape with all of her money. She loses everything. And at that point, joins the resistance but motivated by vengeance primarily and then works on behalf of a resistance which is morally compromised at every angle Mm -hmm. every single person in the resistance has some relationship to the war that is not you know except for the except for the religious nut except for theo everybody's got their finger in some pie or another and then she spends you know she spends her resistance years drinking champagne in the end she does become the kind of angel of retribution but that also is just retributive justice i guess she's the hero right because she takes the stolen gold from the from her dead family and friends and starts a kibbutz yeah right and so she becomes an agent of like jewish get back she was really lucky she came into that gold when she was hanging out with the communist because he didn't want it. <laughs> right, exactly. He was like, well, what would I do with it? But somehow, and what, well, I'd love to see the movie where this uh, gal somehow absconds to Israel with two huge suitcases full of gold and diamonds. I mean, she had to go through a few checkpoints between here and there. It's, I'd love to see like how she managed it. I don't disagree that she acts heroically throughout the film but like she also doesn't stab Muntz in the neck after fucking him either and she has many opportunities to like be a more destructive force than she is and there was something about that that left me wanting for her like like she is a listener for most of the film which which was her primary utility like that's what she's there to do but man for someone who should be so vengeance minded like she is unable or unwilling or unassigned that kind of vengeance i mean we watch she's there nominally to report on and protect and save the three uh the three 
resistance fighters who were captured and thrown in jail. Mm-hmm. And we watch her kind of be super ineffective in that over the long term. But she does plant the mic. Yeah. I just feel like Verhoeven doesn't have his fetish is not to get stabbed in the neck while you're having sex. <laughs> Wait a second. Uh, Didn't he do that in uh, Basic Instinct? <laughs> he got it out of his system. <laughs> you have a time up? No, no ice pick stuff in this one. I've had my fill. I really think Cadbury chocolate is shit. And uh, I was sad to see that uh, grant life-saving energy to our main character oh, here. You're going to get some mail from our I know. UK listeners. I know. Is that an unpopular opinion? It's more popular than it deserves to be. See, Ben's on my side. I went through a I went through a period where one of the fights that I was picking on Twitter, just <laughs> like the fight that I pick about Chicago pizza being the best pizza, which is just a fight I pick to get Peter Sagal angry uh-huh. and to make people in New York angry because there's nothing more fun in life than to have New Yorkers stack up against you. But I went to I went for a while there on Twitter where every once in a while I would assert that Hershey chocolate was the world's best chocolate. <laughs> and I heard from people around the world about how wrong I was. And the Cadbury people are like, they're yeah, a very vocal a group of people. A cult-like fanaticism over there in Cadbury land. Yeah. And they just were so insulted. And you know, the great thing about a Twitter beef is that you can just hold your ground. It's not like anybody can get you. And I was just like, no, <laughs> fucking Hershey bar with almonds, best chocolate ever. Fight me. But then Dan Benjamin and a bunch of people sent me chocolate bars from around the world. And I did an entire episode of Roadwork where I sat and ate chocolate on mic. That sounds like a very Roadwork episode Where for I was you. just like. <laughs> and it was, it was ludicrous. It was just a mouth sound. Are you sure that episode. wasn't just the first episode of this podcast? <laughs> I don't know what people are talking about. I was not eating a sandwich on this podcast unless I was. I don't remember. I don't think there's any question you were eating a sandwich. It's, I think you even said it. It's very unclear why I would have thought that I could eat a sandwich during a podcast. It's not a, it's it, it, it's an aberration. I have to think that it was because I had every doubt in the world that you two dinglings could make a podcast. With I me. absolutely <laughs> believe that's why you gave that recording <laughs> that amount of effort. <laughs> All right, let's let's do your, sh- your let's do your shitty podcast, but I'm going to eat this sandwich in the meantime. Yeah. And then I realized, oh my god, these two are geniuses. They are podcast pioneers, innovators. Finally. You're the only person that's ever thought that. I don't think so. I re- I realized what great podcasters you are. Oh. Now look at me. Now look at me a year into it. And I still won't refer to this as a pod. <laughs> So we've talked about uh, the relative heroism of our main character. We've talked about all the adventures that she's gotten into, but we haven't talked about the ending and its relative satisfaction to the rest of the film. Like, her fight continues. Like, right. bombs are raining down on her kibbutz. Right, she's in the kibbutz, and, it, and all of a sudden it's the next war. What do we expect will be the end of her story? Because... When films kill off their main characters, there's usually like there's some sort of catharsis. There's a there's peace for a character that has not been at peace up until then. There's a heroic depiction of a of a life being sacrificed for someone else. There's like all these different things. 
but she has turned the corner and rebuilt a life and she's got a family and a, and a beautiful sunset to look at. But was this a Paul Verhoeven style fuck you at the end? That's like, you know, you went through this with me and with us, but like nothing stops the bombs at the beginning of of the Suez crisis. So like she's gone too. What do you think was the message there? It's very tantalizing to see the foundation of Israel and its continued survival as the feel-good ending of the Holocaust, for European countries especially, and for the United States, because the U.S. denied entry to Jews trying to escape Europe, uh, the Vatican complicity, all these countries trying to reckon with the fact that they gave up their Jews in large measure. And so the foundation of Israel and the success of, the relative success of Zionism was, I think, for a long time, a way to mitigate our guilt because the Jews found a homeland. And it was part of the, uh, part of the story of Israel, too. Although the, the Israeli story was, we found a homeland and we are fucking not going through that again. Mm-hmm. Like, the reason that we are swords out is, unlike you guys, we don't think of this as a, as a done story. Right. It wasn't like Israel and then, it, well, so in the last 30 years, the story of Israel has changed in the West. And now we can't decide whether they're oppressors or oppressed or both. Like there's a lot of talk about how the Jews are as bad as the Nazis as regards the Palestinians. Everybody's really conflicted. And I think Verhoeven pretty smartly locates all of that in that final moment. Because I think she survives that, that, uh, that scene. I think she's one of the founding generation of Israelis. And I think we're meant to take that, chew on it, recognize that that Suez war and the and the six day war and all the subsequent wars were part of a continuity of that experience of Jewish experience in modern life but also we've just come out of a movie where everyone is morally compromised and we're going into a continuation of that as well it mm. seemed to make the choice to me that like this was le- this was never about Caris and more about like Jews will never be safe. And if you think that they are on their way from, they're on their way toward that kind of safety or, or control of their own lives, like here come the bombs and then smash to credits. Although, I mean, we know that the Egyptians got their asses handed to them, handed to them over and over and over. Like the the situation in the Middle East now is this super tense stalemate as a result of multiple attempts to eradicate Israel. So it's not, you know, it's not like Israel is not giving up 75% of its Jews as a part of an administrative mm-hmm. oops-a-daisy, yeah. right? I mean, so I think Verhoeven did, I mean, it's, I admired that ending a lot. I admired this movie being situated first and last from the standpoint of that kibbutz mm. because it was just, it, there was no cheap ending to this. It didn't wrap up. Boy, didn't you think it was going to end with the sunset? Like, that's another ending after an ending. Ben, what did you think about the ending? I mean, I hadn't really thought about it in the the way that John just described, and it kind of erased what what I had thought about it, which was just, oh, yeah, that's what Israel is like, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I hadn't 
gone much deeper than that. And I guess I feel like maybe when I was watching the movie, it didn't necessarily uh, make the leap that this was the Suez crisis when oh. when that scene happened. I th- I think I was just imagining that they were drilling or something. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I think I think it was a little bit lost on me initially, but then when I, when I started reading about it, obviously, like the the meaning of it started to become more clear. For all the false endings this movie had, I was never convinced we were close until we got back to post-war Israel, because that's where we started, and that's you know the the entire film is a flashback of Israeli Rachel's. Right, it would be really hard for this movie to have ended somewhere without going back. Yeah, that would have that would have been bad editing. Right. Yeah, the fact that she has has founded a kibbutz and also a nuclear family is uh, is comforting and and reassuring. And to have the, I mean, like they are like kind of casually wandering into the into the gates as as the soldiers scramble for the the border. So. <laughs> It didn't. It didn't exactly feel like they were running from something, you know. Yeah. But I don't know. Like those guys are aiming their guns at something at the end, right? They're just like totally oblivious to the fact that there's a, I don't know, a bunch of Egyptian troops behind them or something. It, it that also feels a little bit like a, um, a, you know, like a movie shorthand or a movie, like the Suez Crisis, was mostly that the Israelis surprise attacked the Egyptians. Yeah. It wasn't a thing where peaceful kibbutzers were just milling around and all of a sudden, whoa, man the gates. <laughs> As a defensive works, uh, cyclone fencing is not a great thing to stand behind and aim your rifle. <laughs> Did not go well for that kibbutz. <laughs> yeah, right. They had these little, these little watchtowers and it felt like, you know, if you had a mortar, uh, what you would shoot at is a watchtower. Yeah. <laughs> you were you were asking to be A-teamed out of that watchtower, too. Like, <laughs> right. You go right over the camera into the mattress below. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. That's a that's total Rambo too. Yeah, you'd get hit with a hit with a an exploding yeah. arrow and then yeah. oh falling. Are there God, this is such a I I'm reluctant to even ask the question, but like, are there Suez crisis war films that I'm not thinking of? Huh. Interesting. Cause we, I can't think of any, we should look into it. Yeah. It's a weird war. You know, the, the thing about the Suez crisis is that it was a, there was a lot of politics around it. It had to do with Nasser grabbing the Suez canal and nationalizing it. And the British and French thought that they were going to, that they were going to, um, flex their muscles on the international stage uh, collaborating with Israel to to pull off this kind of raid on Entebbe style uh, big move and they blew it. They blew it big time. The United States did not have their back. Eisenhower did not think it was a good plan and it ended up being a huge chink in the armor for the British and French. It was, It's like kind of widely regarded as the last gasp of Britain's global hegemony. After that, they were a second-rate power because they they tried to do this big chess move like they were so famous for, but they blew it. 
But Israel more or less walked away kind of like the Israeli army really acquitted itself pretty well, fucked up the Egyptians, and then it the 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 react the international reaction was not it was directed at the British and French, not the Israelis. Hmm. So I don't know what I don't know if there's a good movie that would encapsulate all of that politics. There some there were some cool raids. Are you doing some research? Did you see anything? I am. Yeah, I found three films. Uh, listed under Suez Crisis Films. Uh, one was Nasser 56, which looks like uh, an Egyptian historical film. Nice so maybe one. that wouldn't work for us. But one of them uh, looks like it really would work for us. It's called A Prize of Arms. It's a 1962 British crime film. Set in the Set Suez in 1956 uh, as it follows a criminal gang as it tries to rob an army pay convoy during the Suez Crisis. Oh, Talk about a pork chop movie. I can yeah. see Ben already sharpening his little knife and fork. Yeah, that sounds like us. Throw I like it to on use the a, a serrated blade with a with a oh, with right. a meat. You know, of course, of course you do. And then we got Sammy going south. That's a 1963 British adventure film. I think maybe we'll uh, throw two out of three of these on the list. Yeah, right. Suez Crisis. Get to him. Yeah. For every film comes its own custom rating system. I designed that system because I need something to do here. Uh, for the film Black Book, there is a moment. I don't know if this is like a Verhoeven moment because I can't think of like an analog to it, but there is a moment where uh, where Muntz and Rachel are, are pre-coital. They're like about to get down to it. And this is before, before Muntz declares that like he knows he knows her dark secret. Adam, I, I believe we refer to sex as boning down on this program. <laughs> it's true. Wait a minute. Isn't that your other program or is that <laughs> is that exclusive to this program? Just I this remember one. objecting to it when I heard it the first time. They're about to bone down and they've been boning down a lot. They've been boning down for the whole film, but this time feels different. It feels different because Muntz brandishes a gun boner. He has, he has a beneath the sheets erection that uh, that Rachel uh, points out and makes fun of, and it turns out it was a gun the whole time. Yeah, it's a very, very too short kind of thing to do <laughs> by Moons there. <laughs> this gun boner is going to be the, the rating system. <laughs> One out of five gun boners. To me, uh, Black Book is a lot like that gun boner, right? It, uh, it looks like something that it is not. It is all all the gloss of a Hollywood film, the panache of a great ensemble acting team. Everything looks beautiful. Everything is acted beautifully. There are real stakes here. It was great. It really made me think, too, because when Muntz is executed, like, I think you're meant to feel bad in that moment, and I did. And I think my favorite war movies make me think a lot about how I feel about the good guys and the bad guys. And this was like, if you're going to pick a war film where you have two and a half hours to really think about it and to think about how national side, like on a, on a macro level, is of little consequence to, to these skirmishes that are happening on a micro scale, like in a bedroom with a gun boner, I really like movies that make me think about who I'm rooting for. And this one definitely did. I mean... Rachel, notwithstanding, like she's an easy person to root for in this film, but everyone else, I think your allegiances change 
throughout its two-hour runtime. So I really like the film. I think it's a four-boner film. And it's the se- it's the sort of film that I never would have seen before doing this podcast with you. Like, it would have been lost in time. Like, this is one of those films in the mid-2000s that, like, you don't see without a reason. And I think people should. I think it's a good film. Yeah, you're not going to go to Blockbuster and rent this. No, I mean, what would what would you do outside of a closed Blockbuster right now? <laughs> <laughs> They'd be very confused by your presence, I think. Ding dong. They wouldn't be because they wouldn't be there. <laughs> I agree that this was a, I think we've discussed uh, pretty well how complicated this movie is, how um, how varied it is, how much it it gives you no resolution, really, or not the, not the satisfying resolution you want multiple times. You want to see Moon stabbed in the neck. He's not. Mm-hmm. You want to see, um, you know, you want to see the bad guys flayed, and they are. But sometimes for the wrong reasons. And Munz, sometimes with a bunch of good guys. With a bunch of good guys, right. Muntz ends up getting executed in the end, but it feels like an injustice. Right. Um, you know, uh, Franken gets his comeuppance, but in a way that's weird. Weird and and kind of left, asks more questions than it answers. I mean, the, you know, Rachel gets bad treatment, but also manages, you know, to survive it all but not in a way that you don't get the sense when she's on that kibbutz that she has a clear conscience, right? She's making up, she's, she's paying for her sins the best way she knows. All of that is great, but it feel this film is very stylish. There's a lot of style in the cinematography. There's a lot of style in the vignettes because Verhoeven is trying to get everything in here. He's trying to get Jewish gold. He's trying to get uh, bad Nazis and good Nazis. He's trying to get good re- good rebels and bad rebels. He's trying to get Dutch complicity, but also and all and end of war violence and betraying lawyers. I mean, he, everything is in this movie, and it's all very stylish. And that style over time started to wear on me. Because it did evoke a kind of Hollywood glitz that isn't in the script. And that was the thing that stood between me and four gun boners. Although I feel like it's an, uh, a good film. An, uh, I stopped short of important, but a valuable film to watch. And one that you don't come out feeling a ton of clarity. And as Ben said earlier, one that has a lot of resonance now because you want to locate yourself now mm-hmm. in some feel-good version of of Nazi story, right? You want to be anti-Nazi now, and you want that to mean that you are just and do a good job in the world and protect the weak and innocent, and this movie does not let you do that. Right. So I'm going to give it three fully loaded gun boners and one uh, Luger that has a half empty clip. (laughs) So it's under the blanket. It functions as a gun boner. But if the, if the rebels, you know, if the resistance bursts through the door at that moment, you're going to get three of them, but not 
six of them. Not the full load. It's not a fully loaded gun boner. Right. But it is a gun boner. So it's like somewhere shy. Without question. Somewhere shy of four gun boners, but more than three and a half gun boners. Wow. <laughs> that was just for Adam. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, um, I was uh, surprised and delighted by this movie. I thought it was a really fantastic film. Great, great story. Really interesting characters. A, a look at a, you know, for all the billions of World War II films there are out there, I have never seen one that kind of looks at it from this angle and at this span of time. When I look at the stats on our podcast, I see the movies that are most popular that the most people have seen definitely get little spikes in downloads, like the your, your, uh, your Alien and your Platoon and your Saving Private Ryan are, are you know, downloaded more often than our, your Army of Shadows. And uh, this is one of those ones where I wouldn't have seen it without having started this podcast with you fine gentlemen, and I really hope uh, people do see it, because I do think that it, it's worth seeing, and I think it, it, it will make you think about, uh, you know, what's going on in the world now, and like what led to it, and uh, what, our, what our place can and should be in it. And yeah, like for a film that is as long as it is, I felt like it, it really moved along. It held my interest. I have been thinking about it since I watched it quite a bit. And um, yeah, I'll give it a, a solid four gun boners. Wow. <laughs> Just one last thing to do is the selection of our guy. It's a point in every movie, I think, that we try to... As John said, like this is a film that that feels almost tailor made to to ask the question of who that might be, who might most embody your spirit in the film. Who do you who could you possibly root for in this film? Just a I don't just a quibble. This is not the last thing we do. We also have to pick another movie, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many administrative tasks. There's so many the endings end to this fire. podcast. It's much. It's kind of the black book of podcasts. It's just ending after ending after ending. If this were directed by Paul Verhoeven, uh, John would be exposing his breasts and I would be shot in the chest 40 times. Uh, guys, I don't think it will surprise you to know that my guy is going to be oblivious sailor guy. He shows up fairly early. He uh, He's just out sailing during the war. Sure. He's in his tiny sailboat. He's he, having a great day. He sees a babe. He sees a babe on the shore listening to her music takes the time to hit her up this is i mean if if you're going to try to see any connection between my guys i think this is the selection that's gonna make it happen for you because my guy was fires on the plane date guy that didn't work out well for him (laughs) and uh and my guy in enemy at the gates was uh was the guy getting fresh with the other the other soldier like like hiding behind a a rolled over car as the as the tank shells rain down on them I like this guy in a war film, a guy who takes a little time to experience some real life during the hell of it. Hell yes. And uh, and we never see, I don't think we see what happens to him. Oh, he gets shot on the boat. Yeah, he does. He's one of the first to get shot. He's one of the first to get shot. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but like damn it he's really going for it he lived his best life didn't he he's he's trying to set up his little his little fenced in area of uh, of non-war and romance in he his joined life. the resistance to not getting laid he Aww. got a front row seat to that barn explosion too which was awesome yeah that's a hell so of an obli- explosion oblivious sailor guy is my guy what about you ben there's one guy that really kind of like the boner that this guy pulls uh i felt very keenly and it's when um when munz and ellis are escaping the nazi compound in the back of the in the back of the car with the blanket thrown over him the uh the guard at the gate with a flashlight in hand like sticks the flashlight into the car and then sticks his entire head in the car <laughs> and takes a hard look at the back seat and satisfies himself that there is nothing to be f- suspicious of there are here. not two people under a blanket in the back seat of this car are we to believe that he wasn't munting that moment in in seeing that you know seeing the folly and in, in continuing to fight as hard as he can and and do his job as well as he could do? Or do you think he actually saw them? I think it's a little bit ambiguous. It is either, I just work here, I'm not going to risk my skin, you know, because somebody's shoplifting or whatever. Like, that thing of an employee who's, like, actually not that bought into the job that they have because their their job is super boring and they don't care that much. That's a retail job if there ever was one. Mm-hmm. So it's either that or he's fucking terrible at this job <laughs> and I either way be i feel at like this job than this guy i uh, i keenly identified with him so uh that's uh that's my guy how about you john well about halfway through the movie all of a sudden in the resistance uh scenes there appeared two women who were wearing headscarves and although it it wasn't clear whether they were operatives it seemed like they were they weren't just there polishing uh bullets it seemed like for them to be in that small group they were also running missions but they had for a long time in that middle section of the movie they were expressing an awful lot of just kind of like shitty superiority they were listening to those recordings and being like, those bitches, they're going to get theirs in the end. Right. And when people would say things in the room, if you looked at them, they were kind of sneering, but but smugly, you know, some smug sneering going on. And I felt like they were there for a reason. They were doing a very good job of communicating a kind of advance of what we saw later, which was the Dutch turning on one another as collaborators. They were they were. Uh, loaded for bear to to take these other women out at the knees the first chance they got and they reminded me so much of the girls that i tend to date (laughs) um absolutely in every way the only thing that they didn't do was give a like a very impassioned defense of neutral milk hotel Uh, and an explanation why Neutral Milk Hotel is better than... That's uh, on the uh, DVD special features, the deleted scene. (laughs) They did not try and explain why Cat Power was better than Neil Young, but they could have. (laughs) And they definitely are ready, but they also, you know, there's a scene later where there's only one of them and she bursts into tears at the death of all of the revolutionaries. So, I mean, she's clearly very much embedded in the 
And we never see their operations. We never see them. They're the ones that are probably knifing Nazis in the throat. Yeah, I, I like got a, a smugness from them as if like they were the real killers and they couldn't stand to hear about this. The, the girls in the fancy dresses who yeah. are out. Yeah, they're having all the fun, not yeah. these hard girls. There's a, a thing that kind of is a very interesting coincidence in terms of us watching this right now because um, a woman by the name of Freddie Overstegen, who was uh, a Dutch resistance fighter who seduced Nazis and murdered them, just died one day ago at the age of uh, the age of 92. And she was a teenage, like her sister, I guess, was a leader and she and a, and a group of friends like did exactly that kind of work. What I imagine the, the women in the headscarves in the back scene, background scene were doing, which is like out there saying, hey, you know, hey, soldier, follow me into the woods and maybe I'll give, uh, maybe you can show me your gun boner. And then they got in the <laughs> woods and it was like knife in the air as, teen- as teenagers, right? And she's lived her, the rest of her life kind of having had that experience. Freddie Overstegen. She's uh, got a real Sarah Polly look about her if I were casting this film. Right. So, so anyway, those two women were my guy. I just really recognized them as real people in this movie and and although they were they played small supporting roles they they did an awful lot of heavy lifting in terms of setting the scene good guy good guy you know i've heard you describe your ex-girlfriends in a lot of different ways but it could have saved you a lot of time to just say they're like a bunch of infighting Dutch resistance fighters. <laughs> oh, I mean, now I have a, now I have an explanation. It's yeah, just like, oh, total sense. who do I date? Uh, Dutch resistance. Yeah. <laughs> Girls in the Dutch resistance <laughs> right. pr- tend to be. Half of them Jewish. All of them with knives tucked somewhere on their persons. It's a real conversation stopper. I don't feel like a lot of people are going to ask questions after that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one question I have for you, John, is what is going to be the next film that we watch? Oh, all right. Let's let's find my hundred-sided die. Set up a little die rolling fence here. Yeah, uh, I just got to get, get like all- a like a cafeteria tray or something. Yeah, yeah. right. I, I was thinking I needed a big tray. Yeah, you definitely need something else on this table. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here we go. Good fully. Oh, it's still rolling. 46. 46. Well, you guys uh, are not going to believe this, but the next movie is another Paul Verhoeven film. No. Oh, wait a minute. RoboCop is a war movie. No, it is not. 1987 war on crime film called RoboCop that oh, had come a- yes! Oh, Jiminy Christmas, you guys. War <laughs> on crime. Oh, this is amazing. War on crime? I can't... Are you sure that this actually happened? This actually happened. And you're not happened. just thumb on the scale? I would not put my thumb on the scale. Uh, this was uh, this was movie 46. War on crime. What? Yeah, the, at that point, this podcast is about nothing. <laughs> We did. We already did war on drugs. You're gonna put old Yeller on here. War on dogs. War on crying. War on childhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
I think you might change your tune after we watch this film. Yeah. When was the last time you saw RoboCop? 1986. Well, it's about the military-industrial complex getting into the business of crime fighting. Oh, yeah, okay. Right? I see what it's you're exactly saying. what Eisenhower was afraid of. Well, among other things. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, okay. War on a military-industrial complex <laughs> under the cops. I guess I see what you're going for here. It's happening. It is happening. Uh, <laughs> Boy, <laughs> RoboCop. Unbelievable. Uh, I am really excited for this. You know what I'm most excited about? You changing your tune about RoboCop. <laughs> you are going to fully throw to the endorsement of RoboCop as a war film. I mean, I definitely feel like there are factions of our listeners, and I feel like one of those factions is really rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> one of those factions is just fist pumping because they believe you guys. Yeah, yeah. All, all the people that leapt to the defense of MASH are, are very <laughs> angry right now. They're super mad. And then there's a third faction that's just that's fist pumping because they know how much this is hurting me. <laughs> all right, Robocop, no one sure. Wants, no one wants to see you suffer. I don't believe I don't believe that. you will suffer during this next episode. I am sure there are people who want to see me suffer, but... Mostly those are Dutch infighting resistance fighters. <laughs> We've got to throw some popcorn films in here because, uh, you know, if it's all Dutch... Uh, resistance <laughs> movies the entire time. We're going to drive people away. Well, yeah, welcome them back into our bosom with I RoboCop. I don't know. All right. You know, what can I say? Of course, right? Hey, we can't... Uh, can we do a third Verhoeven in a row uh, under our rules? No. Like, or or do we? can we not do a, a third Verhoeven? The odds are very low, but I, I think to, in, to be in keeping with the rule, it would have to be four Verhoevens in a row oh, and I, I, I don't know how many movies he's made I know that uh, there he has another movie on the list but I, I right. don't know if he has two more movies on the list Basil Polidorus one of the great movie score people ever does mm. Robocop mm-hmm. a character in the film that score it's fucking great is it yeah alright I'll listen to it well that'll be next week and uh, I'm so sorry this had to go down this way John <laughs> <laughs> like John looks like he had a a giant vat of shit dumped over his head. As you, when you said Paul Verhoeven, Adam like jumped up in his chair, like uh, like he, like he was jumping up from a mouse on the floor. Like they called my name on the Price is Right. Yeah, and then when you said 1986, his face lit up like the sun. He knew the answer. He knew what it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could have had the same reaction, but I, 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 was, lo- I was sitting there looking at it. Anyways. <laughs> In the meantime, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte, and our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Our logo art, it's by Nick Dittmar. If you'd like to continue this conversation online, why don't you use the hashtag FriendlyFire, or you can go discuss this show over on Facebook or Reddit. We've got plenty of spaces for everyone to talk there. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. 
You can leave us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. That's very helpful. Or head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate to support the ongoing production of this show. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Robs, 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 MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.